You asked for it. Here it is. It's a podcast from Apathetic Enthusiasm. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Submit It for Your Approval, a Twilight Zone podcast. I am your host, Brandon Cruz, and with me today, I have a writer and cultural critic whose articles can be found on the Washington Post, ESPN, and RogerEbert.com. His book, Black Trailblazers, 30 Courageous Visionaries Who Broke Boundaries, Made a Difference, and Paved the Way, is in the notable social studies trade books for young people. Uh, I want to give a warm and wonderful welcome to Bijan. Bijan, welcome to the show. And thanks for having me on. Now, you reached out to me in way back at uh, the start of 2017. Uh, and in, in that time, I was still going very strong with the show. I was like, yeah, season one, season two, we're, we're, we're doing it. Um, and I always had you in mind for the episode that we're going to talk about today uh, because it, it it talks about talks about children um, and uh, how how things how the show handled children. And so I went on my hiatus, and as soon as I came back, I'm like, okay, I got to reach out back out to Bijan and and get you in here, and also apologize for the delay. So I'm glad to have you on here. Yeah, it's exciting to be on about this. Uh particular element of the series and um a specific episode that's an example of it yeah and well so to get into it uh we're talking about the fugitive it aired in uh, march of 1962 the ninth day of march starring susan gordon j pat o'malley nancy culp directed by richard bear and uh written by charles beaumont um so getting straight into the you me and imdb synopses where uh, get your your synopsis, my synopsis, and then we compare it to IMDb's. Um, do you want to start, or I can start? Uh, I'll take a I'll take a crack at it. Uh, a a group of children is playing around in their uh, urban neighborhood, and the uh, a monstrous form of alien appears to them, and they're shooting imaginary ray guns with their fingers at it and harassing it and uh, having various reactions. Uh, it actually turns out that it's a what we now call in fantasy a, a shapeshifter or a person from another planet who, uh, who can, uh, in this case, a male, make himself appear uh, any way that he wants to. Uh, that entity befriends a little girl who is uh, wearing a leg brace uh, for a uh, an abnormality with one of her legs. And in that befriending, uh, the little girl lives with an aunt, a uh, skeptical aunt about the person who's now taken on the form of an old, uh, friendly, uh, caring male, grandfatherly male. And two persons who also have change their former shape, appear in the form of police detectives, are pursuing the monstrous alien slash friendly grandfatherly figure who has befriended the young girl, and then we'll kind of uh, pick it up from there that lives, that lives with her, um, I would say, surrogate parent or foster parent, portrayed mm -hmm. by Nancy Cole. And I won't give all the plot turns and what happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, I I have a little bit shorter uh, just to just to summarize it all. A girl and her shapeshifter friend who's on the run. <laughs> uh, and IMDb makes it a little bit longer than that. And they say Jenny and the other kids don't realize that the kindly yet magical old duffer they play within the park is really an intergalactic fugitive hiding out until two serious men come looking for him, asking questions that test their friendship, Um, which, you know, between all three of us, I think we, we got uh, the gist of the episode out there, which is awesome. Well, for a person that's never seen it or spoiler alerts or what have you, not familiar with, uh, not as familiar, hasn't, hasn't necessarily seen every episode of the series. 
I think that's enough to to uh, for them to uh, imagine uh, without revealing uh, what the twists and things like that are. Yes, for sure, for sure. Well, let's let's get into the episode, John. Uh, so let's go ahead and start without with some of your initial thoughts on uh, on the episode. Um. Well, 2023 eyes or 2017 eyes. It's interesting to imagine how a director would handle uh, the generational difference between the two figures that befriend each other now and whether elements of it would be, would be deemed less innocent in a society where we've uh, been tainted by things like um, predators and child blank offenders and um, the internet and other things, and also just not being as not that the Nancy, the aunt character was trusting, but not even that level of early 1960s trusting with a child of that age around a stranger. Um, but that's just a side observation we can revisit later at this time. Um, initially, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting episode in the way that it does uh, navigate a vulnerable child issue, especially a vulnerable child who... Um, in the 1962 terminology, we would have called handicapped. And also uh, other children in the neighborhood. And an added level of vulnerability that I think that Sterling and his uh, team are, are, are dealing with deftly here is the fact that she um, is obviously adopted. So she's not with her natural parents or she wouldn't be living with the sister of one of her natural parents. And she lives in sort of a, not, you know, sort of a walk-up uh, brownstone, so she's not wealthy. And so that adds to her uh, vulnerability to me in a certain way for uh, early 1960s audiences. So um, it's, it's got supernatural yet, I want to say mawkish, but it's got supernatural sentimentality. And it'll be interesting to see how Beaumont and the producers were or weren't able to pull this off, depending on how one, uh, how well one likes or dislikes this episode. I, you brought up a, a point there um, on about the the other children in the neighborhood. Now the episode starts with them playing in the field, and they're they're kind of playing baseball, uh, and we see Ben uh, the the titular fugitive uh there yeah, with uh and and she she pulls him in she pulls him into the game uh what can you talk about with your thoughts maybe expand on your thoughts about the other kids in that scene uh and and how it relates to kind of that theme well um it's you kind of have to a lot of people that are listening to this or watching this you kind of have to give the context of the era. So in the era, um, this is kind of like a couple years before the big monster craze when masks and posters and games and branding and costumes around the werewolf, the creature from the Black Lagoon, to be, eh, this is more of an outer spacey looking figure than that, but uh, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, and the mummy became like this big craze around maybe late 63 or 64, where there was tons of uh, paraphernalia products, uh, uh, children's items built around those brands. And so to have this Ben shape-shifting figure in an episode like that, where, where it's confronted with children, or he's confronted with children is, is uh, is interesting because this is around the time of, you know, the outer limits. Um, and there was a lot of, and this has been B movies. And there was a lot of usage of these uh, rubbery suited space figures in Hollywood and TV. So I think that the fact, I think the fact that it's not scaring like it would be in some B movies, teenagers or adults or police or scientists or professors, it's confronting children is a little unique. And um, I 
and, and, and Serling introduces it uh, from a park bench after the soft open. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot going on in, in that uh, generation gap, and there's a lot going on with um, this is really like the era of the B movie, yeah. uh, the horror movie Monster as Alien, uh, the something that invaded Earth, uh, a lot of which is kind of like a Cold War um, phenomenon yeah. or Cold War metaphor. And I think that that has to be taken into account when one's watching the app. Although a lot of that is metaphor and it, it could have taken any shape. It's the befriending and the trust with the young child that's that's uh, much more important than uh, the shape that it takes. So I think the shape is dictated by the era. Yeah, I I tried to watch, tried to kind of put myself in, in the mind of, of somebody who's kind of that B horror, uh, you know, monster movie type of perspective, seeing the kids when the, when the monster comes back around the bush, uh, and like, there's, there's a, a small beat. There's just a little beat where the kids are like, Oh, it's a monster. Shoot it. Uh, and then it turns into like, no, they're not actually afraid of this, this creature. They, mm -hmm. they it's part of their game. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and how kind of, uh expectation subverting that that is we're like oh no they should be afraid oh no they mm -mm. no they think this is fun right yeah um there would have been a lot of toys miniature toys in that era that kind of looked like that thing obviously it wouldn't be that size um children would have been slightly not if you saw it in real life of course depending on how old you were but slightly desensitized to that image because it was so oft uh, featured in um, preacher movies that they may or may not have been old enough to see. The oldest boy in the scene that's shooting at it is um, is uh, Beaver's uh, good neighborhood friend, Gilbert, who I'm sure was under contract for CBS. I think his name is Stanley. No, Stanley Prefera is Whitey. I'm th trying to think of Gilbert's name in real life. Um, so that boy maybe was 11-ish. Um, but yeah, I can, I can kind of see where, to your point about the time, you would buy that they would be afraid, but then kind of like, not like, oh yeah, you know, gorilla costume, King Kong costume, monster costume, alien with two antennas coming out of his head costume. We're kind of in that, uh, frame, time frame. And it's interesting because obviously, uh, I think in 61, my favorite Martian debuted, if it didn't debut in 62. And he um, looks like the rest of us, when, as portrayed by Ray Walston. After that little, that, that exchange, right, we, we, meet, we meet Ben. He gets shot uh, in pretend and falls back behind the bush. And then he shows up as, as Ben. He's no longer uh, dressed in the, the monster costume. Uh, then it kind of switches, uh, certainly comes out. He does that, that soft opening, uh, closes out that narration, uh, talking about science fiction versus fantasy. Uh, the, I, I had to write it down, uh, because I kept getting confused. The improbable made possible <laughs> sci-fi and then fantasy being impossible made possible probable. Uh, yeah, what, what, that was interesting that. to just stick in there like that. I mean, that's like a, a thesis paper for a college, you know? Yeah. <laughs> this is just a side question, I, I think, but do you think maybe not without getting too deep into the episode itself, do you think that that thesis that he puts forth at the beginning of the episode kind of sticks to landing like uh, throughout the episode? Do you, do you think that makes sense for this episode? I think it does, but I'm surprised that he mentions it since there's so many other episodes in which that uh, balance is attempted. Um, I'll, I'll just use one for an example. Um, the ep where um, Keenan Wynn can make wives or girlfriends appear by reciting into his tape recorder, the playwright. Hmm. Uh, there's so many, uh, uh, Mr. Dingle, the strong, there's so many eps where that's in play that it's interesting that he would have a soft open, particularly delineating that um, on this app. I mean, even um, even it's a good life. Um, I mean, this this you would be hard pressed to think of. I mean, obviously it's it's 
it's done more with those two dynamics dramatically juxtaposed in some episodes than others because there's so many. But I mean, from you know, the bewitching pool and on and on and on. <laughs> it's, it's 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 interesting that it's the only one where Serling actually addresses it. But you got to have a soft open, and if you're on beyond the air four and a half or five and a half seasons, you can't. You have to say something different every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have it. I that makes sense. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and I, and I guess you know, with 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 space creatures and uh, just kind of creating things, it does have mm-hmm. it does have that fantasy sci-fi mix mash feel. That's uh, true, and Twilight Zone is not is not in the bent of uh, one step beyond or the outer limits, and that a lot of the things that are going on uh, are not paranormal, not supernatural, and are actually going on in the mind or. You know, you have the episodes like The Silence or the episode where Anne Francis uh, has the uh, encounter in, in the uh, abandoned department store where, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. or, or, or Inger Stevens, uh, it's, you know, uh, driving those those apps are not, you know, there's nothing in the realm of. Uh, of a horror movie or a monster movie, uh, even even in the. Uh, you know, it's, it's the furthest thing from that that the series usually tries to accomplish. So, point made. Um, I wanted to kind of switch points here a little bit. Uh, so Ben takes her uh, the little girl home. I, I, I her name slips me all of a sudden. Uh, but uh, t- takes her, walks her up the, the stairs because she has a brace on. Uh, and that's when we're first introduced to Mrs. Gann, her aunt, who is her caregiver uh, for for whatever reason. Uh, and the thing about Mrs. Gann, she's very, uh, you know, very abrasive uh, and off-putting when we when we first meet her. And then eventually, later and later on in the episode, Ben says Mrs. Gann is a nervous person. And also tells the little girl, try to forgive her. Uh, and I thought that was interesting because then uh, towards the end, when uh, sh- she is on the bed and she, the uh, his alien, his alien compatriots have mm-hmm. uh, made her ill. Mrs. Gann is very nervous and very sad about, sure. about that happening. Um, exactly. So, so I wanted to kind of explore that, you know, uh, that, that different view of caregivers and, and different view of, I think, uh, abrasive folks in the twilight zone. Yeah. So, you know, the twilight zone airs in you know the early sixties when, um, the national uh, mindset around, um, inner cities is formed by things like naked city. I wouldn't say dragnet because it's like palm trees and things like that in LA. There's no walk-ups. So you have, you know, the east side, west side, naked city, you know, it's kind of eastern seaboard, uh, New York-y image of uh, the kind of community a child like that would live in. I think on um, A Penny for Your Thoughts, Dick York lives in a neighborhood like that. Or some, you know, it's, it's very, <laughs> doesn't look gritty <laughs> in black and white, but but in in, in in the mindset of a person in the Midwest that lives in the suburbs, it would look relatively like, oh, I don't live like that. And so um, to have this caregiver, uh, guardian, a legal guardian, for a person that obviously the writer has taken the uh, extra trouble to have um, as, as probably like a polio patient or something of that nature, or, or a palsy patient, you've only got a half hour to like deal with the character arc of Nancy Culp. So yeah. a lot of times in, in, in TZ, there's either an abrasive uh, wife, going back to you know Keenan Winnap uh, I referenced earlier, mm-hmm. or um, Willoughby, or <laughs> these several, unfortunately, by 2023 standards, uh sexist uh portrayals of uh, of uh demanding wives um sometimes 
sometimes on Twilight. It's, it's usually a wife on the Twilight Zone when there's something kind of abrasive. Uh, but yet the cult character, to your point, um, evolves during the app to where we sense uh, a sense of caring when something else um, happens to the child. Um, and so, you know, they have to shade her in a half hour, and that's um, the way that they do it. They might have to go sort of overboard in the early part to let you know that there's going to be this contrast, which a writer is always looking for. And the contrast would be with um, with Ben, yet um, the softer side that we that we see later. Yeah. When I say contrast with Ben, I mean conflict. I'm sorry. Like, like character conflict like I don't trust this old guy around my my niece not for reason not for 2023 reasons <laughs> right right well and and, and yeah, I I I like that little scene between Ben and Jenny uh where where he says to her you know try to try to forgive her uh and Jenny asks first he says Mrs. Gann is a nervous person and mm-hmm. Jenny says why and he's like I, I I can't I can't really answer that. Uh, she she just she just is. Mm-hmm. But even though he knows that Gan doesn't like him and doesn't trust him for, for whatever reason, he still tells Jenny like, you know, she's a good she's a good person. She's just she has she has personality quirks. Um, and be patient with her because you know she's trying. Uh, and and that, for me that was a after watching the episode a couple times over the years, it, that part stuck out to me a little bit more where he's like, he's, he's telling Jenny very as a kind of a, a mature advisor mentor, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Hey, it's this, this person is, is trying, try to go easy on him. Yeah. Well, when you're the writer, I mean, you're writing it such that Jenny has to live with this lady. So the, if you're the, person from another uh, uh, solar system, mm-hmm. which essentially to me metaphorically is an angel um, in the way that he kind of uh, befriends Jenny. You don't want to pit the little girl against her aunt because the aunt, for some reason of fate, which we're not privy to in, in, in the premise, is her caregiver. So you can't, you don't want to bias her against the aunt. And that's the way that I think the writer uh, dealt with that balance by having um, Ben frame it that way for the little girl. And that that goes to my, you know, my (laughs) observation over the years of how deftly the series dealt with children characters, even when the children in some episodes weren't necessarily vulnerable or uh, exposed to danger, but in a few they were. Nightmares a child in some sense. Um, little girl lost uh, in a very literal sense um, and some others. And, you know, there's even, you might even say the, the first ep that Billy Mooney was on uh, when he's phoning his grandmother in an, emotion, in an emotional sense. So there are some where... Um, you don't see that as often on, say, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's a tough, if you're going to put that out there and send this the teleplay to the sponsors and trust American audiences with that and keep yourself viable as a series, that's a tightrope to walk because audiences are going to be like, oh, my God, you're putting this child in this, in this um, circumstance of the premise. To, to, your, to your point on that, like putting, putting kids in – kind of dangerous situations or uh you know there's there is that as you said tightrope to to walk to make sure that the the viewer in that time uh isn't isn't being offended uh by by what's going on right exactly because in many cases they either had their own children in every case they were a child uh, nieces and nephews school teachers coaches what have you and it's the early 60s i mean you just we just don't see, I mean, there's the bad seed and there's things where the child, uh, such as in Stopover, the child is actually the one. And then um, it's a good life. It's the child that has the power um, over the adult. So the tables are turned. But when it, when they're not turned, you're not going to sit through a half hour of early 1960s television if you're uh, weirded out or it's distasteful the way in which a child character 
saying, well, you're going to write the network or stop watching the series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, so for, uh, for the actress, Jenny, right. Uh, Susan Gordon, uh, you know, I, I thought she did a, a pretty good job. There was like a, a small moment where, uh, where Ben is in the room with her, uh, Miss Gann hears them talking and, uh, she, Miss Gann comes into the room, opens up the door, <laughs> sees Jenny in bed and mm-hmm. like, who are you talking to? And she goes, M- myself, which is such a, such an ideal kid thing to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, m- myself, like this, this, the stammering and the, I'm lying, but I don't know uh, if this is a good lie. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. uh so as far as like child actresses go, uh, cause I thought that was a good moment. Uh, how do you feel about uh, her portrayal in this episode? Well, I, I really uh, admire her work in this episode. I don't know her work uh, from film or movies or the rifleman or other things that she may or may not have, have guessed it on unless it's slipping my mind. But I think the fact that she had to also pull off um the physical um, dramatic role with the brace is mm. an extra thing to have to think about at that age. And also is so much younger, except for the children that are, you know, playing in the park. It's so much younger than all the other principal characters. Um, it's really, she was really cast well. I think she's a little more convincing than the little boy in um, the Big Tall Wish. Not to disparage him, I know. He was on Broadway. He was in Raisin in the Sun. I know he can act, but there's some lines that he delivers that just land. And that's a tough, Big Tall Wish is a tough uh, premise for somebody that age to be in. But I, th- I think she did a, I think she did a, a really good job. And even in the, t- in the 1960s Twilight Zone um, pantheon of child actors, um, I feel sorry for the kids in the, <laughs> in the overdubbed ep, uh, <laughs> Bewitching Pool. That's not their fault. But in the Pantheon, I think she's 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 really right up there. She's really right up there, um, especially for somebody with that many lines. We we can't count Ronnie Howard in um, in Walking Distance because it's you know he only had that one. <laughs> he's a very little boy and he's got the one. Well, he, he was good though. He was good though. He's like you're not Martin. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to we'll have to put together uh, just one of those brackets uh, for for <laughs> exactly a sweet sixteen. <laughs> Yeah, the top top kids of the Twilight Zone. Who yeah. win? I don't think the little girl in the bod is gonna make it, make it out of the round of no. It's <laughs> <laughs> a sixteen seed. <laughs> yeah, hey. It's funny because she goes on to become. You know, she's obviously had a, a very viable career as an adult. Who who knows? There there's room for upsets in our in our sweet sixteen. It's just not a strong app. <laughs> it has nothing to do with her. Uh, Reynolds uh, is Brando. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Well, uh, so what? What? Uh, I, I do. Uh, there was another like little moment there. Uh, the she asks if she's gonna die, and mm-hmm. it's kind of going back to that that thought of like him being that kind of mentor advisor mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. fatherly figure uh, uh <laughs> with yeah, am i gonna die yes mm-hmm. eventually but not right now um and i thought that was an interesting thing uh-huh. to say to a kid because we're usually like no yeah no yeah you're yeah no, there's a little brush it was a little brush off as given he's supposed to be like a comforting angelic grandfatherly male I thought that was interesting writing. Um, not the way he delivered it, but the fact that he said it that way at all. But then I, then I think, and everybody has a diff- is going to have a different take on this, but I think that might be some of the extraterrestrial in him. Be- because he, he says that he had ruled for a thousand years. Somebody wasn't going to take over for another 4,000 years. Mm-hmm. So... In in your kind of perspective, it, it, it's coming from a place of I'm going to be around a long time, uh, but but not I'm not dying anytime soon type thing. Yeah, that's one way of looking at. It. I always look at these things like how do you write a person from from another uh, 
from another planet or star system or galaxy. And I, I you know, we kind of, in the later 60s, we have the, um, the baseline of Spock, who doesn't resonate with what we call like earthly emotions and things like that and doesn't even get some of them. But you don't have to write the person that way. So when he says that, I'm like, well, where is he on the spectrum of all you earthlings and, and your fascination with mortality? You know? <laughs> so it's easy for you to say you're going to live. <laughs> <laughs> you're going you're gonna to be around. That's, that's, that's a given. But what about me, right? Yeah, I'm I'm only seven here. Work with me. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. You you meant you mentioned a supernatural sentimentality uh, or Orion. Uh, can you can you explore that that thought a little bit deeper? Well, the ep opens on this uh, typical uh, rubber suited uh, B movie type alien encounter but it could just it could just as easily been played um like the uh the edwin app mm. um in terms of i mean shape-shifting is kind of uh secondary to to most of the most of the plot so it's interesting i mean i see why it, it's integral, I guess, because you have to have the setup with, you know, how does how does the story even start? And also being in disguise on Earth. I mean, even Superman sort of adopts a guy on Earth. Um, but to have that kind of disguise, and this goes to, you know, what we're leading to with the reveal of the photograph under the pillow, yeah. um, is a little out there. But like I said, it's, it's, it's the early 1960s when... Um, that would have maybe been a go-to for somebody uh, physically. Uh, if you're going to have an alien character in the early '60s, you're going you're to go with that weird. You're going to go with that weird look. But the episode, to me, has more tones of just well, this is an angel. Like the like the like it does with with, with the uh, ep with uh, Ed Wynn. Well, older older angel angel embodied by an older figure. Right, right, right. You so you mentioned a couple of times now uh, looking at Ben as a, a metaphor for an angel, right? Um, let, let's explore that just a little bit more. And uh, what other ways, um does he kind of per, uh, present himself as that? Uh, walk, walk me through that. Um, he's not from this realm. He um, is benevolent. He is um, somewhat sympathetic and a little bit even empathetic, as you spoke about it, where he gives the little girl sort of a measured uh, viewpoint about Ms. Gand. Um, and uh, he just has these otherworldly um, powers that in most fair from that era, we don't associate with rubber suited aliens. We don't have, we don't, we don't see them um, with human uh, range of emotion or human, they're just rubber suited aliens on a yeah. beach chasing teenagers that live in a beach house or being shot at by the militia because they have invaded the earth. We don't, we don't ever see them having, uh, being able to morph like that. So, so I just, I just think it was a way of, uh, dealing with an angelic character, but in a cold wear horror movie monster type of way. Yeah. And, and, and with, and without being explicit about it, about being like, yeah, this is this is an angel we're 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 talking about. Instead, it, it's giving the 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 feel uh, of of an angel without again explicitly saying it. And yeah, like he he helps heal her leg. Um, 
and he uses uses his power, his little uh, twirly majig, <laughs> to 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 heal her leg. And he didn't do it before because he didn't want to be found before. Um, right. And even doing like even his um, affinity with the with the kids out there on the field at the, at the start of it, like he he cares. He, it's clearly he cares. He cares not only about the kids, but he cares about. Uh, I keep going back to Miss Gann too. Well, obviously he cares about her too with whatever she's had going on in her life. Yeah, I mean, he has characteristics that we associate in mythology more with Angel than we do with King or long reigning King, which is not to say that they're not benevolent kings in fable and myth and mythology and even real life. But if 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 we place that story in it in its subgenre, um there are more angelic characters like that than there are royal characters like that. So I think the king and the uh, prototypical alien cast that he that he first appears to the audience in are sort of like not necessary to the plot as much as what his relationship dynamic is with um, Jenny, the aunt, and his pursuers from his planet. Mm-hmm. It could have it could have been any it could have been anything. And I think this is a good point now to point out that uh, the 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 title, the fugitive, referring obviously to him. Uh, and he does a little bit of not it, obfuscation. Uh, he he's intentionally vague uh, when Jenny asks about what he did uh, to to run away. Mm-hmm. Um and which we find out kind of subverting the title there. He's a fugitive only in the sense that he he's a runaway is, is what he wants. <laughs> uh, and he is a, a king of a planet that we don't need to know the name of. Mm-hmm. And those those people are his subjects and those subjects love him so much that they want him to come back, much like Jenny wants him to stay with her. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's a- that's not an uncommon trope in mythology either. Did Beaumont write this as a short story, or did he write this for the series? Um, I, I have to I have to look. I think uh, he probably he, wrote this specifically. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to say that. I'm not positive. I was thinking he wrote this specifically for the series. If I had to guess, but he, it could have been a short. I think he. I think he collaborated with Richard McDonough um, mm-hmm. on on the on the story. So. Uh, it may have been a short story. I'll have, have to check that out in my, my book. Huh? Yeah, the reason I asked that is because the uh, To Serve Man, which also dealt with people from another uh, star system or galaxy, um, was a was a was adapted, but Serling, um, you know, they, they took some liberties. So I'm just wondering, like, in short story, if this was a short story, in short story form, what, what some of the character nuances of the king were and and how how broad uh, and emotional, uh, like you say, he told the little girl, you know, <laughs> sort of like we're all gonna die, uh, sweetie, and but not, yeah, it, it just it would just be interesting if there was like way more ban- way more uh, dialogue between him and the Miss Miss Gan character, what that's like if there were a full-blown Beaumont short story or whether this was just written for the series. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm not, not sure. I'll go ahead and put that in my notes to, to check out um, after recording. Oh, well, uh, is, is there uh, any other things that kind of jump out at you? Any other stray observations that you might want to uh, chat about? Um, not particularly about the app. We can get into some of them. If you have some, uh, it did, air the week after To Serve Man and it aired the week before Little Girl Lost. So in the arc of how Serling was ordering them, or how the network ordered them or, or approved them, it's interesting that it airs the week after an ep about an invasion, but it, it airs the week before an ep about a little girl who's uh, lost in another dimension. That's kind of a... <laughs> it, it has a little bit of both of those things in it. Well, I, I, I so I want to... Your point about to serve man uh, and then going directly after that into the, the fugitive uh, just like the, the night and day benevolence versus malevolence of those two episodes. Right. Like 
the the aliens we we trust aliens we we trust them and then they're going to get us eaten versus this one where we trust aliens because they're actually good <laughs> actually good people you, you know something i i wonder when he as a producer submitted the the uh the season episode list to the sponsor he he, he put this one in that order to be to be like oh yeah they're gonna be a little weirded out by the one that has the new in it and we're all gonna get eaten <laughs> so let me so the next week i'll yeah, let's uh, make, let's put a positive one. Let's put if, a positive if you, one. If you let me have, if you let me have this one, I won't bite you too hard. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, 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 I think that's the the fine art of of having a show too, right? Is is making those themes like spreading them out, just like any, anytime like you have a a series or um, you, it's all working with the viewer's emotions, and like you, if you are grim dark or too depressing for too long then then you're going to lose start losing an audience and so kind of having these peaks and valleys of 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 content is probably had to been a consideration when uh putting these episodes in an order somewhat i mean if you look at the comedic bent of some of the earl hamner written ones you 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 can kind of almost see uh where he where where serling tries to sprinkle in some things like, uh, you know, some that are almost like, you know, obviously one was even almost a pilot uh, for a sitcom starring Carol Burnett. And then there's, you know, the Penny for Your Thoughts and the Orson Bean app. And so this is like, yeah, I'll, yeah, I know how your sponsors are. So I'll, I'll work with you here. I'll sprinkle in some, some uh, black leather jackets and some, <laughs> and, and some ones that I think are like, literally laugh out loud funny and people and and in retrospect like 60 years later some of the ones that are supposed to be laugh out loud funny are like how did that get (laughs) uh for 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 every for every to serve man there's a the mighty casey right (laughs) yeah i yeah i i'm not that's that's not one of the ones that i have a whole bunch of issues. Almost, almost all the ones that I have major, major issues with were written by him. But I try not to. <laughs> I was on a pod where, where, where the host was far more um, forgiving of Hamner than I was. <laughs> and I think Hamner wrote the uh, the one that was unfortunate to air last. Oh yeah, yeah, the bewitching pool. Yeah, let's let's dub. <laughs> let's let's see. <laughs> Since we're getting ready to tear tear this sucker down, <laughs> let's see how many things we can have go wrong, including our audio. Yeah, yeah. let's let's end it in style. Screw it. <laughs> Blow this thing up. We're gonna go out with a bang. <laughs> uh, well, uh, okay, all right, Bijan. So, uh, last 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 thing, uh, if you don't have anything else to talk about this episode specifically. I want to just kind of get your sense on like where you rate this episode in the pantheon of, of Twilight Zone episodes and in whichever rating scale you uh, want to choose. So um, if there were a marathon and I missed this one, and you know where I'm going here, it wouldn't be one that I'd be like, oh, I was in bed or I was out doing something when the fugitive aired. Um, it's not in that top six, seven, eye of the beholder, it's a good life, uh, walking distance, uh, to serve man, uh, you know, uh, that, that, that echelon, of course, most of them aren't. But on the other hand, the, because it is able to pull off this sort of, uh, sci-fi opening, fantasy middle, uh, balance. I, you know, I'm not, I don't hate it. Um, I think, I think Susan Gordon did an excellent job. Um, I, I just, I, I kind of, it's, it's in there with, in the kind of like kick the can. Uh, it's, it's, it's mid, it's in the mid range. It's, 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 I classify with a lot of <laughs> a lot of similar episodes that involve 
older people are, young, are very young. <laughs> but about death, life, uh, you know, those kind of things. Right. I'm not. I'm, I'm not an. I'm not not an enormous fan of the uh, ep where the uh, the couple can pick the uh, younger bodies. Uh, I guess oh. it's based on uh, the, the Ray Bradbury story. I seen the. No, that's the grandmother. I seen the. I'm not a huge fan of that one, but it's way better than that one. Now, of course, the short story is great, but just the execution of the, of that one with the grandmother robot AI. <laughs> is really done badly, but but there's some ones that don't have anything to do with technology that I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't like the masks. So yeah, it's 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 in the it's it's among the many 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 eps that's kind of right in the middle. I don't think it's I don't think it's super horrible by any means. It it's not it's not bad. It's not great. It's right there, smack dab in the in the middle with the majority of episodes. Yeah, very special camera. Um, probably not quite as good as that. That's very clever. Um, it's 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 not Twilight Zone even. It's just a nice uh, uh, metaphor about uh, an older protective figure and a and a young girl who's uh, has some physical challenges. It's a it's a to serve man palate cleanser. <laughs> That's what it was. I'm gonna put this. If I'm going to lose a little girl in the ep after it, and we're going to be invaded by malevolent figures in the ep before it, uh, hey, Charles, can you hurry up and write something that can air in the week 25? We're going to, people are going to be depressed, man. We, you, need, you need to write something quick. <laughs> uh, now everybody's going to go try to find out, if, uh, hey, what was, going, what was going on with that? That's an interesting ordering. And it, and I think this is fifty no sixty two. So it's it's like the third one, two, three, four, fifty-nine, sixty, yeah. sixty, sixty-one, sixty-one, sixty. Yeah. Third year. Because it is in March, so it's the third year. Yep. Yep. So it's an established TV uh fixture by then. That's right. That's right. People are tuning in just just to watch this. Uh, and and boy, did they love this episode! <laughs> I'm sure. You know, Twilight Zone is interesting because in some markets it aired in the daytime in the 70s and 80s when a child wouldn't have been able to watch it. Mm. So when you're looking at these ones like Stopover and It's a Good Life and this one and Nightmares of Child, you could potentially have watched them when you were under 10 when they aired as reruns in some markets. Oh. But they weren't written for you. No, of course, yeah. I'm, I'm sure it probably aired like nine nine thirty in its original run. It's like it's like uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> well, a little dark, dark, a little bit more um, serious tone <laughs> than that. Except when Hitler was on those. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, oh, this I, I have I have one last question, uh, and I, before I forget, uh, it's a choose your own adventure. If if there was an alternate ending to this episode, what would it be? Well, in an alternate ending, Ben wouldn't morph Jenny him Jenny and himself into identical forms, so that when the detective slash uh, bounty hunters from his planet come back, they can't distinguish between the two. So um, <laughs> he still looks like he looks uh, as the grandfatherly person, and she still looks like she looks. Um, I, he gets captured and taken back, I guess, maybe under that scenario because he's identifiable. I also, what, what do you think about the uh, handsome man image on, under the pillow uh, of how he looks to? Um. Uh, I'm looking at it with 2023 eyes, right? <laughs> and so there's there there's there's a struggle in me the entire episode. Like, don't think of it like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's very it's benevolent. There's nothing bad about it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then uh, in the closing narration, talks about Miss Gann not understanding that Jenny is going to be an honest to goodness queen someday, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that. And then pair that up with the picture underneath the pillow with 
uh, him being a handsome young man. And I'm like, ah, 2023. Yeah you, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do the marriage <laughs> element in the writing, not marriage, but that they're going to be together forever if you wrote it for, for today's audiences. That would be, that would creep some, you wouldn't be able to get that by the yeah. sense. Yeah, senses. If, um, if, if, the, yeah. if the picture, I think, if the picture ended up being him as a young boy, like mm-hmm. like an 11 year old kid, mm-hmm. then then I think be like, OK, that makes it OK for me, because then right. then he's he's just another fellow kid. Uh, and then the kids can get can get married. Um, but the innocence yeah. kind of goes away when it's like a, a man in his young 20s. It's amazing how how tastes and uh, taboos and things. I mean, it's sixty years ago. It's just amazing. Like, there's a lot of episodes where there's things that happen that you'd have to kind of um, they they wouldn't be able to air and land the same way. Uh, now, I mean, it's 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 calm. I mean, this is true of all TV fair in the early '60s, but it's probably particularly true of a morality play because. You have so many strong, you can't have the, <laughs> you can't have like stereotypically harpy wives <laughs> too many times on a series in today's, it just, they just wouldn't land, you know, it's, it's just come a long way. Um, yeah. For, be- for better or for worse. Well, it's um, like, a, like a quality of mercy with Dean Stockwell. Like that's, that's not a, an episode that necessarily lands. Uh, well, it, it, it's harder to watch, I think, with that one um, in modern times versus back in the 60s. I don't even think you could do Nightmare as a Child unless unless you had a series that was a little darker. Yeah. Nightmare as a, Nightmare as a Child is pretty heavy. Yeah, I, I try, try to think of like any other ones that uh, are like that. And I mean, I'm sure we can spend another uh, 20 to 40 minutes <laughs> like brainstorming all the ones that Probably. Well, I mean, it's heavier than Jack Kludger and Billy Mooney. Not that that's lighthearted, but I mean, it's just it's just amazing how, you know, like pre-Kennedy assassination, Cold War, neighbors fighting on the street about whose lights are turning on and off and who has a fallout shelf. It's, it's, it's like a five or six-year pocket in time where you can't show, like, Dick Van Dyke and, you know, you can't show Laura Petrie and Rob Petrie in the same bed, but you can have, like, little people who you can't find in their bedrooms because they're lost in another dimension Mm. uh, because, like, the Cold War thing and the nuclear threat is going on. You you can get away with a lot uh, back then, but not in the sexual or violence kind of. Yeah. Or you have a grandmother who wants her grandkid to die so she has a friend in the afterlife as a yeah. long distance or, or robert redford disguised as a cop to kill a lady that's right that's right hey robert redford you started off by playing villains <laughs> no i i really this this is this is a as as mid and when i say mid i mean this is a for this series mid is no it's no disparaging i mean there's so many good ones that if you're in the middle it's like saying you're like in the middle of all the high school trophy winners or all the, uh, you know, you're still uh, very, very strong TV and, and memorable TV that stands up to the test of time. Um, it's, 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 uh, yeah, I think, I think it's worth looking at just because it's kind of a time capsule. I mean, the, the kind of dwelling that, that she lives in, um, it's really, it would be really interesting to show it. So like a college class or somebody out of somebody like early adulthood, because it would resonate so differently with them. Yeah. And, you know, like that's one of the things about me wanting to do this, this, this podcast was like being able to see the perspectives of folks watching these episodes through different eyes, because obviously I have my, I have my experiences I have mm-hmm. my my frame, my my lens, uh, mm-hmm. but others with the diversity, like there's there's so many different ways of looking at things uh, and looking at these time capsules, as as you said, uh, to extract things that 
maybe the folks who are listening now didn't think of before, right? Well, just just take this element, and I don't want to belabor this, but just take this sole element. In 1962, if you were writing up a, a synopsis of this premise for TV Guide or for the local uh, TV insert magazine that was the television schedule for each uh, newspaper market, it's not out of the it's 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 not beyond uh, it's not stretching the imagination that the person writing the synopsis would have used the adjective cripple. So for somebody to watch that now, we don't see even to this day that many uh, portrayals of people that age that have a uh, that are physically challenged. This is like 62. Uh, you know, 2023 now, uh, a lot of a lot of if we if we see those things on TV now, they're now they're being uh, represented by uh, folks with with those um disadvantage it's, so it's like a diversity it's like an inclusion thing you yeah know, where there's yeah. going to be a certain amount of people with downs there's going to be you know obviously there was a character on on uh life goes on who who had downs yep, there been right. people on there was a, a young girl on uh the facts of life that had uh, there was a comedian that had sort of a uh an impediment there um so it's like it's like part of having asians part of having yeah uh black characters part of having uh straight or gay characters but you know, back then that wasn't she would have the vulnerability in a 1962 lens is very different than just having somebody on now because you want to represent it so just that one thing is like okay let's show it to a class of usc film students and see what their takeaways are and then they'll be like uh do we have to watch black and white <laughs> i know i've heard people on on indie film podcast like uh I think his name is Alex Ferrari, the host of the Indie Film Hustle podcast. Say so every time he tries to sit his daughters, who are probably not that much older than Susan Gordon was back then, down to watch something like The Wizard of Oz or It's a Wonderful Life, 10 minutes in, and they're like, Daddy. And black. <laughs> <laughs> and black. <laughs> yeah. Uh, whenever New Year's rolls around and the Twilight Zone marathon is, is just nonstop in my house, my 11 year old is. I was like, uh, okay, I'm going to go in the other room and watch something. Uh, That's amazing. I was talking with somebody who's about 65, but her kids are grown. And we were talking about um, toddlers and how toddlers can move things with their finger on a smartphone, but they'll walk over to a picture book and things in the book don't move when they <laughs> the fingers or they walk over to the TV. They they kind of have grown up in a, in a, in a world where they expect to be able to control yeah, the, uh, the the medium of the platform, and she was talking about the black and white factor. Although her kids are grown, and I told her the story about Alex Ferrari's daughters, and it's just amazing how off-putting um, even the type of film something is shot in is to a subsequent generation. Yeah, that just would I just would have never when I was a child. I mean, even well, because there were so many shows that were still filmed in it. But that's just it's just amazing to me that that's like a, a barrier to entry but i guess i'd have to think of something analogous that would have been a barrier to entry to me when i was there like i'm not gonna watch something if it's i don't want to listen to a radio drama whatever <laughs> no I, I wouldn't i wouldn't have said that because i used to listen to cbs radio mystery theater when i was in high school but i'm sure that we had something like that. it wasn't 45s or albums or lps because they were still extant but we we had to have had something that we were like lawrence welk really might <laughs> <laughs> oh come on i don't i don't want to listen well I, I you know there has to there has to be some i mean generationally there oh there, are, there probably had to be a ton i mean it was like beatles and Funkadella and this and that and jackson you know there had to be a ton that were like I think I'll just go outside and play. That's going to be a hard pass for me. Our kids will always find something to be embarrassed about us by, right? So, you got to have generational gaps, and that goes back to the premise of this this episode. That's right. That's right. Well, well, Bajan, I, I appreciate you uh, talking about it. I agree. It is, uh, you know, it, it's it's not a bad episode. It's it's kind of there in the middle. Uh, but uh, you know, like I, I appreciate all the things we discussed here. I want to give you a, a minute uh, to uh, to chat about you know, the the things that you've written about. 
uh, your articles, your your book, uh, and uh, give a chance to have people be able to find you. Yeah, well, the easiest place to find me is Twitter, which is the at symbol Bijan C. Bain, B-I-J-N. That's an unusual thing. And uh, yeah, so out of nowhere, my uh, speaking of young adult book was named to a list of best social study reads for third to fifth grade readers. Although, you know, that's it could be just as easily read by high school students. And I've actually been invited to visit a whole bunch of high, not a whole bunch, but several high schools to discuss the book with people that are using it in their curriculum. So that's how I know it. It does uh, have pretty wide readership range by uh, Penn Faulkner. Penn Faulkner has kind of, that foundation has included the book in uh, a program where teachers can use that book. And if the author is available, can invite that author to the school to talk about the book with their class. So uh, I'll do a little screenwriting myself. But if somebody wants to get a sense of what the bio is like or uh, other things that I'm interested in or previous musings about Twilight Zone or the Twilight Zone. Uh, Twitter is probably the easiest way to monitor that for those that say, oh, this guy is, why was he on? <laughs> well, let, let me, let me, let me tell you, I've, I've had people that ha- have no knowledge about the Twilight Zone on, uh, and look, you've, you've got, you've got plenty of knowledge. So a wealth of knowledge, some might say. Uh, I would say that. <laughs> so no, it's it's been great having you, uh, and the the insights that you, that you brought, uh, and the insights that you have in in some of your writing, too. Uh, recommend anybody go out and check check that out. So I'll have some links in the show notes, uh, and I'll I'll uh, tag you in the when I do release the episode as well. So yeah, I really appreciate it. I mean, I, such a big fan, even since maybe eight. Eight-ish when I first started seeing reruns and in high school when I could really understand the reruns and they aired twice a night in the market that I lived in mm-hmm. that I pitched right before the pandemic-ish uh, to have live readings of episodes with a theater a, a theater group up in Cape Cod up on oh. Cape Cod yeah. and they actually agreed to do it and I asked. Um, the Sterling Estate, if it was okay with them, and they said, yeah, but check CBS. And several months later, a CBS attorney circled back to me, because you, you, obviously you can't do dramatic presentations with people dressed up as the characters, but it's some there's some wiggle room for live readings where nobody is, you're just kind of like literally reading the teleplay. Huh. But CBS came back because of something that happened in London several years ago, and they said, mm, we used to let people do it, but we don't even let people do live readings anymore. So that's that just I say all that to just express um, how deeply my fandom is, even if I can't always recall episode titles. I the the London thing, that's interesting. I, I recall there being something about that. Yeah, somebody crossed the line and then CBS mm. kind of pulled back uh where they don't allow anything now. You can't even do like a People get up on stage and they're not dressed up as the characters, but they're literally just reading the lines from that episode. You can't even do that. Thanks, thanks, London people. <laughs> just good, <laughs> just good. I don't want, I don't want Tom uh, coming back and and uh, slapping me. <laughs> Tom. No, it could have, it could have been anybody that ruined it for the rest of us. I just thought it would be neat because the uh, the players were interested, and um, yeah, I would have, I would have done probably the iconic six. And people would have gone up once a week that had, you know, theater subscriptions or not. And they would have seen, you know, probably, like I said, the iconic uh, five or six, and it would have been a lot of fun. Ah, that'd be, that'd be, that'd be so cool. That'd be so cool. Well, well, hope, hopefully uh, in the next, you know, in coming years that CBS kind of lessens the restrictions on that. Uh, and, and, you know, there was also the reboot that was going on. Uh, Jordan yeah. Jordan it might've had a little bit to do with, um, you know, not wanting to dilute the market with the reboot and just like maybe there was some uh, small print in, in that contract about let's not have people doing things while we're, yeah because it was it was right in that time. And, but yeah, I mean, really appreciate, yeah, really appreciate you having me on and getting into the weeds uh, about this app. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm always a little fascinated yet uh, really, um, I really have to, 
give the series a lot of credit for using children in a way that they were not used on other somewhat analogous TV series, even subsequent ones like Tales of the Dark Side, Tales of the Crypt, uh, the reboot of TZ in the 80s. Uh, I guess the closest thing in its time frame would have been Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It's just they just weren't able to manage that and have very few episodes with, uh, I would say, grade school age children on them. And when they do have them, there's a particular episode of uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents where a boy thinks that what the audience knows as a loader gun is his cap gun because they look identical. They really don't handle that well. Mm. It, it would scare uh, the audience and it would make you, you know, see that the child is in a, a position that makes you uncomfortable watching it. Not only him, but the adults. Yeah. And it just it just is not just not pulled off with the deafness that Sterling was able to do in probably like maybe eight to ten episodes. It's just tricky. Huh. Huh. Yeah, I'll uh, that'll be an episode that I uh, go research or or, or find and and, ch- and check it out myself. But yeah, hey man, I I really appreciate you reaching out to me first of all in 2017, uh, letting me go on a hiatus, then talking in 2020, but then not talking to you again until 2023, and you being willing to come on uh, to to chat with me. So I really do appreciate it uh, in uh, giving us the, those insights. But what's six years when you're going to be king for what? Five? What, what, is, <laughs> right. what do they say? What do they say on uh, escape laws? What, what's what's a millennium in the grand scheme of things? <laughs> that that's right. We're just we're sticking with Twilight Zone time. Is is what's what's going on? <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it.